0: Books, your weekly program about great reads through book talks, trailers, and first chapters. Presented by Mrs. Winningham and Mrs. Kovach. I'm Mrs. West, and this is Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech. All about a story spin us a yarn instantly phoebe winterbottom came to mind i could tell you an extensively strange story i warned oh good graham said delicious and that is how i happened to tell them about phoebe her disappearing mother and the lunatic as sal entertains her grandparents with phoebe's outrageous story her own story begins to unfold the story of a 13 year old girl whose only wish is to be reunited with her missing mother In her own award-winning style, Sharon Creech intricately weaves together two tales, one funny, one bittersweet, to create a heartwarming, compelling, and utterly moving story of love, loss, and the complexity of human emotion. Chapter One, A Face at the Window. Gramps says that I am a country girl at heart, and that is true. I've lived most of my 13 years in Bybanks, Kentucky, which is not much more than a caboodle of houses roosting in a green spot alongside the Ohio River. Just over a year ago, my father plucked me up like a weed and took me and all of our belongings. No, that's not true. He did not bring the chestnut tree, the willow, the maple, the hayloft, or the swimming hole, which all belonged to me. And we drove 300 miles straight north and stopped in front of a house in Euclid, Ohio. No trees, I said. This is where we're going to live? No, my father said, this is Margaret's house. The front door of the house opened and a lady with wild red hair stood there. I looked up and down the street. The houses were all jammed together like a row of bird houses. In front of each house was a tiny square of grass. And in front of that was a thin gray sidewalk running alongside a gray road. Where's the barn? I asked the river, the swimming hole. Oh, Sal, my father said, come on, there's Margaret. He waved to the lady at the door we have to go back. I forgot something. The lady with the wild red hair opened the door and came out onto the porch. In the back of my closet, I said, under the floorboards, I put something there and I've got to have it. Don't be a goose. Come and see Margaret. I did not want to see Margaret. I stood there looking around and that's when I saw the face pressed up against an upstairs window next door. It was a round girl's face and it looked afraid. I didn't know it then, but that face belonged to Phoebe Winterbottom. A girl who had a powerful imagination who would become my friend and who would have many peculiar things happen to her. Not long ago, when I was locked in a car with my grandparents for six days, I told them the story of Phoebe. And when I finished telling them, or maybe even as I was telling them, I realized that the story of Phoebe was like the plaster wall in our old house in Bybanks, Kentucky. My father started chipping away at a plaster wall in the living room of our old house in Bybanks shortly after my mother left us one April morning. Our house was an old farmhouse that my parents had been restoring, room by room. Each night, as he waited to hear from my mother, he chipped away at that wall. On the night that we got the bad news that she was not returning, he pounded and pounded on that wall with a chisel and a hammer. At two o'clock in the morning, he came up to my room. I was not asleep. He led me downstairs and showed me what he had found. Hidden behind the wall was a brick fireplace. The reason that Phoebe's story reminds me of that plaster wall in the hidden fireplace is that beneath Phoebe's story is another one. Mine. Chapter 2. The Chickabiddy Starts a Story. It was after all the adventures of Phoebe that my grandparents came up with a plan to drive from Kentucky to Ohio, where they would pick me up and then three of us would drive 2,000 miles west to Lewiston, Idaho. This is how I came to be locked in the car with them for nearly a week. It was not a trip that I was eager to take, but it was one I had to take. Gramps had said, we'll see the whole ding dong country. Graham squeezed my cheeks and said, this trip will give me a chance to be with my favorite chickabiddy again. I am, by the way, their only chickabiddy. My father said that Graham couldn't read maps worth a hill of beans and that he was grateful that I had agreed to go along and help them find their way. I was only 13, and although I did have a way with maps, it was not really because of that skill that I was going, nor was it to see the whole ding-dong country that Gram and Gramps were going. The real reasons were buried beneath piles and piles of unsaid things. Some of the real reasons were, number one, Gram and Gramps wanted to see Mama, who was resting peacefully in Lewiston, Idaho. Two, Gram and Gramps knew that I wanted to see Mama, but that I was afraid to. And three, Dad wanted to be alone with the red-headed Margaret Cadaver. He had already seen Mama, and he had not taken me. Also, although this wasn't as important, Dad did not trust Grandma and Gramps to behave themselves along the way unless they had me with them. Dad said if they tried to go on their own, he would save everyone a lot of time and embarrassment by calling the police and having them arrested before they even left the driveway. It might sound a bit extreme for a man to call the police on his own tottery old parents, but when my grandparents got in a car, trouble just naturally followed them like a filly trailing behind a mare. My grandparents' Hiddle were my father's parents, full up to the tops of their heads with goodness and sweetness, and mixed in with all that goodness and sweetness was a large dash of peculiarity. This combination made them interesting to know, but you could never predict what they would do or say. Once it was settled that the three of us would go, the journey took on an alarming, expanding need to hurry that was like a walloping great thundercloud assembling around me. During the week before we left, the sound of the wind was, hurry, hurry, hurry. And at night, even the silent darkness whispered, rush, rush, rush. I did not think we would ever leave, and yet I did not want to leave. I did not really expect to survive the trip. But I decided to go, and I would go, and I had to be there by my mother's birthday. This was extremely important. I believed that if there was any chance to bring my mother back home, it would happen on her birthday. If I had said this aloud to my father or to my grandparents, they would have said that I might as well try to catch a fish in the air, so I did not say it aloud but I believed it. Sometimes I am as honry and stubborn as an old donkey. My father says I lean on broken reeds and will get a face full of swamp mud one day. When at last Graham and Graham's Hiddle and I set out on that first day of the trip, I prayed for the first 30 minutes solid. I prayed that we would not be in an accident. I was terrified of cars and buses and that we would get there by my mother's birthday, seven days away and that we would bring her home over and over. I prayed the same things. I prayed to trees this was easier than praying directly to God. There was almost always a tree nearby. As we pulled onto the Ohio Turnpike, which is the flattest, straightest piece of road in God's whole creation, Graham interrupted my prayers. Salamanca. I should explain right off that my real name is Salamanca Tree Hiddle. Salamanca, my parents thought, was the name of the Indian tribe to which my great-great-grandmother belonged. My parents were mistaken. The name of the tribe was Seneca. Seneca. But since my parents did not discover their error until after I was born, and they were, by then, used to my name, it remained Salamanca. My middle name, Tree, comes for your basic tree, a thing of such beauty to my mother that she made it part of my name. She wanted to be more specific and use Sugar Maple Tree, her very favorite, but Salamanca Sugar Maple Tree Hiddle was a bit much even for her. My mother used to call me Salamanca, but after she left, only my grandparents Hiddle called me Salamanca, when they were not calling me Chickabitty. To most other people, I was Sal, and to a few boys who thought they were especially amusing, I was Salamander. In the car, as we started our long journey to Lewiston, Idaho, my grandmother Hiddle said, Salamanca, why don't you entertain us? What sort of thing did you have in mind? Gramps said, how about a story? Spin us a yarn. I certainly do know heaps of stories, but I learned most of them from Gramps. Gramps suggested I tell one about my mother. That I could not do. I had just reached the point where I could stop thinking about her every minute of every day. Gramps said, Well, then what about your friends? You got any tales to tell about them? Instantly, Phoebe Winterbottom came to mind. There was certainly a hog's belly full of things to tell about her. I could tell you an extensively strange story, I warned. Oh, good, Gramps said. Delicious. And that is how I happened to suspend my tree prayers and tell them about Phoebe Winterbottom, her disappearing mother, and the lunatic. Chapter 3, Bravery. Because I first saw Phoebe on the day my father and I moved to Euclid, I began my story of Phoebe with the visit to the red-headed Margaret Cadavers, where I also met Mrs. Partridge, her elderly mother. Margaret nearly fell over herself, being nice to me. What lovely hair, she said, and aren't you sweet? I was not sweet that day. I was being particularly ornery. I wouldn't sit down, and I wouldn't look at Margaret. As we were leaving, Margaret whispered to my father, John, have you told her yet how we met? My father looked uncomfortable. No, he said. I tried, but she doesn't want to know. Now that was the truth. Absolutely. Who cares? I thought, who cares how he he met Margaret Cadaver. When at last we left Mrs. Cadaver and Mrs. Partridge, we drove for approximately three minutes. Two blocks from Margaret Cadaver's was the place where my father and I were now going to live. Tiny squirt trees, little birdhouses in a row. And one of those birdhouses was ours. No swimming hole, no barn, no cows, no chickens, no pigs. Instead, a little white house with a miniature patch of green grass in front of it. It wasn't enough grass to keep a cow alive for five minutes.